Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. And we have a really interesting interview for y'all today. So we are continuing on with our Culture War series, and we are speaking about immigration. We have a fantastic guest expert, Uriel Garcia from the Texas Tribune. He's an immigrations reporter. He lives in El Paso, Texas, and he knows what it's like to be on the border, to speak with folks who are immigrants here. And he is all about understanding their stories because a lot of times in his experience, and we agree with this too, a lot of immigration rhetoric on news reporting focuses around policy and economics and politics, but he's really interested in the people and the stories because that is at the end of the day, what really is going to be long lasting, what matters. So Nicole, what are you still thinking about after this conversation? Though he didn't want to emphasize it, he is an immigrant himself and immigrated to the U.S. at the age of one before he had the choice to do so. So that is also the personal part of what drives him, I think, to tell these personal stories. So that is just something that stuck out as we always start with people's origin stories. That was something that I found really interesting. But I did also really appreciate how he differentiated between that that is something that plays a role in his desire to make people's stories the center of his work. But also he is a journalist and does not want to center himself. So I really appreciated that reminder of what journalists do. Yes. Journalists are so critical to everything. Like, oh man, who runs the world? Journalists. Like that's what I'm st- Well, I hope they run the world because we need their stories and their truth seeking so that we can understand and frame our world in a basis of knowledge and mutual reality. So shout out to journalists. <laughs> yeah. Democracy cannot exist without a healthy, robust journalism. Yes. And for this conversation, I mean, Nicole and I had a lot of questions, but I think as we were talking to Uriel, we realized this is a really complicated issue. If anything, I'm thinking about now when I think about immigration, something Uriel said was that immigration laws are arbitrary. And I just kept thinking of this image of shifting ground, like nothing's the same. Everything is it's very transitory and uncertain. So what might have been true today wasn't necessarily true in the past and vice versa. So I think the conversation took a different route than we were expecting, but still like very illuminating and a lot to think on. Yes, it feels like a really good starting point. As we you'll hear us say at the end, we realize there's so much more that we can and would love to talk about. But this is a starting point. This will be the entry point into continuing to ask what I believe now for me will be the right questions and at least have some sort of framework. I think before it was I didn't have a framework even. So hopefully that's what other people can get from this. Don't be overwhelmed. There is a lot to wrap your mind around, but it, it is a really good starting place. Exactly. Yeah, this is the beginning of our conversation and we're hoping to have more conversations. So sit back, learn a little bit more about immigration with Uriel Garcia. 
Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We are really excited to talk about immigration today, and we have a fantastic guest, Uriel Garcia from the Texas Tribune. Hi, Uriel. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for inviting me. Yes, we have lots of questions, and we're so glad we got in contact with you because this is your work. This is what you do day in, day out. And it's going to be so great to get that knowledge for ourselves and share it with our listeners. So let's do it. Okay. Well, we like to start our shows getting to know our guests a little bit more. So can you tell us, are you from Texas? Where are you from? I am not. I grew up in Phoenix. That's where home base is for me. But I was actually born in Mexico and my family moved to Phoenix when I was one. So over 30 years ago now. So did you become a citizen later in life then? Yes. Something that the process we went through much later. But yeah, when I talk about immigration, it's not just something I do for work. It's also something that has that has affected me. And to be transparent with listeners, I am still not a U.S. citizen right now, but it's in the works. Oh, okay. That's good to know. That's great flavor, I feel like. Yeah, I love that you have real life experience. This isn't something that's theoretical for you. Is that something you feel comfortable talking about? I'd rather not, not because I'm worried about anything for me personally, but I like to keep my personal story. I like to tell people it helps me get informed when I'm reporting, but I try to keep the story focused on the people I cover. Great. Yeah. We've thought a lot about where we kind of fall in the world of journalism and we are not journalists. <laughs> we definitely are not. We include our personal stories quite a bit. So that is, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think that's something, that's one of the lines that I forget exists when you are a journalist is that it is more about telling someone else's story rather than including your own. But thank you for the tidbit, though, so that we definitely understand your stake in this. Yes. Would you mind telling us, though, how you got interested in journalism, how you found yourself on that path? Yeah, I think I've always liked reading and writing. I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. And to be quite frank, I was kind of ushered in into journalism later. I started off at community college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I took a journalism class as an elective and the professor in that class was Mexican-American. And I was one of the few Hispanic people in his classroom. And he pulled me off to the side one time and he just told me to get a little more active in the classroom and asked me if I was interested in journalism. And he basically wanted to mentor me and guide me into the journalism world because he just felt like there wasn't enough Mexican-American journalists in newsrooms. And so... I was impressed. This could have easily been a philosophy professor and I would have just gone <laughs> into philosophy, but it just happened to be a journalism professor. And I got into it and he helped me transfer to ASU and I just continued doing it. And I just told myself, well, I'm going to make this my goal, see if I can get a journalism job. And it stuck with me. I've been doing it for close to 10 years now. Wow. That's amazing. One of our previous series was on public education. And we, of course, like to ask our guests a little bit about themselves. And I feel like a lot of times we hear the story of a very impactful person helping guide our guests down a particular path. So it just speaks to the power of educators and how they can really have an impact when they really invest in their students. So that's great to hear. And then how did you get involved as an immigrations reporter? I think for me, the goal was always, I want to be a journalist first, regardless of what the topic I covered. But the more I was into journalism, and the more I saw the framing of immigration stories not being the way I like them. I think a lot of people focus on the politics, on the policy, on the economic side of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, those are really important factors when you're covering immigration. 
But I think for me, I really wanted to focus on people, um, the immigrants being affected by the policy and the way immigrants shape our culture, shape our economy, shape our policies, but telling stories through the people who are immigrants themselves. That's something as soon as I got into journalism in the first few years, I was covering a lot of criminal justice issues, a lot of police violence and policies around criminal justice, I had made it a goal that I wanted to be an immigration journalist or immigration reporter. Mm -hmm. That's so important. I feel like that's something that is becoming super clear to me as we have these conversations is that while I am interested in the politics of whatever it is that we're talking about, I'm interested in the stakeholders and all of that, it really does come back to impact. Like I can understand something on a theoretical level or I can have an opinion about it. But the truth is that All of that is just theoretical until I look at how it actually impacts how people are actually living and how it affects them. So I think I'm glad that we're in this conversation, especially I have so many blind spots and questions when it comes to immigration and the border. So many kind of vague impressions instead of the reality of of what it is like. I think even for me, being an immigrant myself, like I said, my family immigrated 30 years ago, and it's much different now. It has helped me. It has informed my reporting, having that personal experience. But I have to say that even just being an immigrant, I recognize how distant I am from the current reality that some of the immigrants are coming are going through. I've talked to my parents about why we left Mexico. And, and personally, sometimes I'm torn because when I visited Mexico and I visited my cousins and I see the lifestyle, sometimes I wonder, why did we leave? It's so beautiful here. And especially when I see my parents being so happy and their personality changes a lot from when they're in Mexico to when they're in the U.S. And so... My parents have made it clear that it was a money issue and they wanted me to get a good education. But then when that experience is a little different, sometimes when I'm looking at people who are migrating now and just the uh, natural disasters they're escaping or the gang violence or the fact that their governments aren't letting them flourish in their personal lives. It's not necessarily something that why my family left. But that's what I mean. 30 years ago, migrating from Mexico is different now. Venezuelans migrating to the U.S. But yeah, it has helped me get some empathy for some of the people that I cover. And I think you need empathy when you're covering people, regardless of the topic. But I just can't imagine my family sacrificing that much now. Oh, interesting. Yeah, with our show, I mean, we're very interested in finding our own blind spots so that we can understand someone else's perspective. And we are recognizing the importance of that because if, as long as we have this foundation of similar facts, then we can figure out the other things you're talking about, the policy, the economics that are important. But it's like you have to start with people first. So I'm so glad that's your focus in your reporting. So can you paint us a picture for what is it like right now at the Texas border? Yeah, it's a little complex. Right. I mean, on one side, you'll have people saying it's chaos and chaos is upon us once Title 42 lifts. And we can talk about Title 42 a little later. But and then and keep in mind, I'm not from a border town. I'm not from Texas. So when I came to El Paso, I was really curious as a journalist. I was really curious. But also in my personal life, I was like, well, is it going to affect my quality of life? Is it going to affect my family's quality of life? And as a El Paso resident now and someone who plans to stay here long term, it's quite peaceful here. (laughs) And I don't know how to explain it because there is chaos to an extent. I think Border Patrol agents are overwhelmed with so many migrants. But I think 
when you look at it from the perspective of the migrants themselves, it's chaos for them. They're being held under in custody under a bridge or they're setting up makeshift uh, camps along the Rio Grande or the Rio Bravo on the Mexican side. And once they cross, there's not a lot of resources for them. I mean, El Paso is trying to do what it, what it can, but it is a largely ignored issue on the federal government where they're not acting to provide more humane resources for them. A lot of them are been on the streets for a long time and they don't have the clothing, they don't have the hygiene products, they don't have money for the food, and many of them are coming with babies or toddlers. And so it can be chaotic, but depending on who you ask. Me as an El Paso resident, I can go a day without seeing a migrant. It's not affecting my quality of life. I can get up and go have dinner at a nice restaurant. Nothing's wrong with my lifestyle. But when you go to the bridge or when you go to the Juarez side and you talk to the migrants, either on the Mexican or on the U.S. side, from their perspective, they're hungry, they're tired, and they're wondering why they can't get help, especially if they're escaping violence or natural disasters. So it's a little complex in that way. I'll say that it's peaceful and agents are doing a good job on containing the chaos to a very certain part of the Mexican side or the Paso side. I don't know about you, Claire, but I kind of feel like I don't know where to start in some ways when it comes to breaking this down. It's so charged. I think thinking about the border and immigration, that sometimes I find that even the question that comes like to the tip of my tongue, there's judgment in it, I think, because it's like, I don't even know whose narrative sometimes I'm starting to repeat. So it's like, I don't even know maybe necessarily what a good starting point is. I don't know about you, Claire. What are you feeling? Yeah, I guess what I was thinking is, and I'm assuming you've done some stories on this. What is the daily experience like for someone who's crossing the border? What's that like? Are they crossing like through a well-known path or is it via a mule? And then once they're here, what's that day-to-day like? Are they just like in limbo? What's their experience current? And I'm sure it's different, but for the most part, what are you seeing as the experience of an immigrant right now? Yeah, I mean, I guess it also depends. And this is how complex it is. It also depends what country they're coming from, right? If we're talking about Haitians or Cubans who don't have the direct access to the U.S., they have to go to an ocean to either get to Mexico or other parts of Latin America. Sometimes they do hire a guide or a mule. Sometimes they just follow a crowd along the way. So it all depends on the country they're coming from. And once they get to the Texas-Mexico border, because of Title 42, border entries aren't open for people who want to seek asylum. So let's say I'm coming from Venezuela and I go through... Depending on the country they want to go through, a lot of times they can't get visas to that specific country to fly in. As an example, Mexico changed its immigration laws to not give as many visas to Venezuelans. So now they're forced to go through the Daring Gap in Panama and go through parts of South America, go sometimes crossing illegally into Central America, crossing illegally into Mexico, finally get to the Texas-Mexico border. In many cases, that's the easiest part. And like I mentioned, port entries are closed unless you already have a visa to come in. They're going to basically crossing the border illegally, crossing the river and turning themselves in. And once they turn themselves in, that's when a couple of different things can happen. Under the usual process, what happens is you get arrested. You may or may not get charged. 
and depending on if it's your first time. Okay, so you were telling us about the experience that immigrants are currently having at the border, and you were saying how some of them are getting arrested and released, and what's happening next. Yeah, once someone crosses the border illegally, a couple of things could happen. They could get arrested, held in custody, and actually criminally charged with either a misdemeanor or a felony, depending on if this is your first time coming into the country illegally or not. There's some exemptions. I think that if you're coming in with a child, it's a little different because then you'd have to get separated from that child if federal prosecutors want to criminally charge you. But there are people being arrested and being held in custody and being prosecuted for crossing the country. Another thing that could happen is they're being released into the country and the process of deportation starts for them while they're free, but they are able to have a day in court to either claim asylum, which could take up to five years to have a resolution on an asylum case, or Title 42. We mentioned it before, and, and one thing I really want to emphasize about Title 42 is that Title 42 is a relatively new policy being used for as an immigration tool. I mean, it's been on the books since, if I remember correctly, 1942. I'd have to look it up, but it's a emergency health order. It was never written as an immigration policy. And it was invoked in March 2020 by the Trump administration for the first time. And it was used both on the northern and southern borders. And the idea was that the reason that they said publicly why Title 42 was needed was because they needed to prevent the spread of COVID among detention centers. And detention centers... That's what I mentioned when people cross the border illegally, they're being held in these detention centers and it's still in place. And basically what it helps or what it does for immigration agents is that in order to start that process that I mentioned earlier, they can immediately tell people you can't come in and they basically, that person has to do a U-turn. Once they cross the border illegally, they have to be either taken back to Mexico or expelled back to their home countries. And it's been used over 2 million times now since March 2020. And a recent federal judge in Washington, D.C. told the Biden administration that they have to stop using Title 42 because the way that it was originally implemented was illegal. And so after two and a half years, going on three years, as of right now, unless something else happens with this case or any other case that's challenging the Biden administration. On December 21st, border agents will go back to what was the usual process, arrest, detain, charge or not charge immigrants or deport them formally. Okay. So if immigrants don't get charged by Border Patrol, are they just like good to be here? Is that what happens? No, not necessarily. There's no... And sometimes they don't even get work permits for a long time. But what happens is that they have to check in with immigration officials while they're living in the U.S. If they want to start the asylum process, I believe they have up to a year to request asylum while they're in the U.S. If they don't request asylum within that year, there's uh, most likely an order of deportation for that person. So at that point, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, it's their job then at that point to look or apprehend that person. And usually immigration knows where they are because they already have the records once they came into the country. So no, not necessarily. They're not good per se. Like they don't 
necessarily have a work permit. They don't get any other immigration benefits. It's up to the person to request asylum at some point. Okay. And it's up to them to hire their own lawyer. And so in some cases, they're kind of in limbo because during those first few months or up to a year, they don't necessarily have a work permit. So they're kind of trying to figure out, what do I do? Do I work illegally? Do I not work at all? And so it's hard for them to start get started unless they already have families in the U.S. that can take them in, that can help house them, feed them, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry, that was a bad word. Are they good? Well, no, but <laughs> I mean, like they're not due in court or anything like that. So an immigrant gets here. How do they figure all this out? How do they figure out the process that they're supposed to go through to stay here illegally? It's hard, depending on where they're at depending on where they want to go, or let's say like they go to a bigger city like New York or LA, there are nonprofits there that may or may not be able to help if those nonprofits are already not overwhelmed with their client base. By nonprofits, I mean like NGOs, organizations that are helping, that focus on immigrant rights and stuff like that. So a lot of them, they don't necessarily know what to do. They're sort of hoping that someone helps them. And they're seeing a lot of legal terms that they never heard of before, trying to gather up documentation to prove an asylum case. Sometimes they lose it on the way. We're talking about paperwork. I think as a general, any American citizen has a hard time with paperwork as it is. And so for asking an, an immigrants who cross through various borders illegally, through the jungle, through rivers, it's hard to maintain all of that. But once if they cross, they get here and they have that documentation. And by documentation, I mean is that they make a police report in their respective countries when they were threatened by something or someone. Or sometimes they hope that the U.S. government already knows that the, those home countries or their home country's government was, were persecuting people depending on their political ideology or their demographics. I mean, it's a lot of them can't afford a lawyer, but the data shows that if you have a lawyer, you're most likely to succeed. And if you don't have a lawyer, you're most likely not to succeed in your asylum case. But getting a lawyer is expensive. Any type of lawyer is really expensive, particularly an immigration lawyer. And for those who do provide pro bono services, they're already backed up or overwhelmed with clients. So they're kind of left on their own to figure it out. Yeah, that sounds very scary. I mean, just the journey to get here, I imagine, is incredibly frightening. But then to be like, I imagine, what if something crazy happened here and we had to leave our country and go to another country where you don't know anyone or the language or who to turn to? That sounds like an incredibly overwhelming, terrifying experience. Right, Nicole? I mean, it really does. It really does. Yeah, it's really hard to wrap my mind around. That's a lot to maneuver and manage, not to mention just daily survival, right? It's like, there's also just the getting through the day and trying to make sure that you have shelter and food. I think that a story that I haven't been able to do, but something I do want to pursue eventually is the mental health that this, the toll that this takes on your mental health. It's such an anxiety driven lifestyle, obviously not by choice, but it does produce a lot of anxiety, the uncertainty of, am I going to be able to see my family eventually again? Am I going to be able to create a family here? What if I have kids in the U.S. and they're U.S. citizens, but I'm not as the immigrant? Because like I mentioned earlier, it could take up to five years for an asylum case to get resolved. And in those five years, let's say you already have a child or you came with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and get married here, you have a child. What happens after those five years when the decision finally comes? Is it finally 
Like, am I going to be able to stay here legally or not? And even then, and let's say you do get asylum, it's not like suddenly you become a U.S. citizen. You get a green card and there's provisions for that green card. You still have to abide by the laws. If you break the law during that time that you have the green card, that green card gets taken away. So yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty being in immigrants, whether you're undocumented or, or seeking asylum. And it's something that some immigrant parents talk to me about is that the anxiety that they produce in the household affects the children when they go to school. And then they fall behind in school and they have their own anxieties at school, not knowing what's going to happen to their future as children and feeling that hopelessness of being a child and not being able to do something more for their parents. Yeah, powerlessness is no joke. One quick thing is that I did have the opportunity to look up Title 42. And so just backtracking a teeny tiny bit, it was first created in 1944. So just for that to officially be on the record. But then I noticed something that you said, Uriel, which was that people coming in you, I mean, it stuck out to me, but I don't know that it would stick out to you. Not by choice, but I hear somebody saying, but they did come by choice. So can you kind of break down what you mean by coming not by choice? Right. I mean, there's various circumstances. That let's say I'm thinking of a woman that I wrote earlier this year, a Guatemalan woman. I'm going to backtrack here a little. She originally came to the country legally, settled in Minnesota met a man who was also in the country illegally, and he was Mexican. They got together, had two children, they're U.S. citizens, and they separated, and they had a hard time in their relationship. And so the man moves back to Mexico. She stays in Minnesota, is raising her two daughters, and her ex has a really tragic accident in Mexico. And she was torn between not doing anything and just staying in Minnesota because keep in mind, she doesn't have any papers to come back and forth from any country if she wanted to stay in the U.S. And so, or having her daughter see their dad one last time before he passed away. And she didn't want her daughters to not see their dad one last time. So she took the risk and moved to Mexico. And so her daughters could spend some time with their dad before he finally passed away. She decided to stay in Mexico after he passed away, but she was in a part of Mexico where the drug cartel is pretty, is targeting regular citizens and regular residents. And one day during work, she gets stopped by a group of men who tell her that they know that she's not a Mexican and that her daughters are U.S. citizens and that if she wanted to stay in the community she was living, she had to pay a quota. She ignored it and she continued with work. She didn't say anything. She didn't alarm anyone. She was alarmed herself, of course, but then they came again. And, and this time they told her, they gave her, her the names of her, do- uh, of her daughters to make it clear, we know who you are. And if you don't pay, something's going to happen to you. That scared her. She's not in her own country. Her daughters are not even in their own country. And so she had to decide, like, do I stay here and risk my life and my daughter's lives or do I go back to where my support system is? And at this point in her life, her support system is in Minnesota. So she decided to get up and leave, gets to the El Paso Juarez border, and they don't let her in because of Title 42. In that very specific case, it was, she felt forced to come back to the U.S. Was it her choice to get up and leave to come to the U.S.? Of course, but we're talking about, does she risk her life or her daughter's life? Or does she get up and risk going to the U.S. illegally? 
and one of them is going to most likely keep their family intact and alive. The other choice is who knows what could happen. So I guess to make it, to emphasize, that's what I meant by some of them feel forced to come or it's not by choice to come to the U.S. illegally. So what's happened to that family? Do you know? Yes. And I'm going to tell here a little bit about the impact of journalism. After I wrote about that family, she got legal help. Someone read the story. They contacted the shelter she was at, asked her, and they got her an exemption of Title 42. She's in Minnesota right now. And last time I talked to her was a couple months ago, and she told me she had an upcoming court date to start the asylum process. That's amazing. I'm just curious, how did you even find that story? I believe I was just calling shelters on the Mexican side. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to immigration lawyers in El Paso, and I just asked them if they had a client affected by Title 42. And they said they did. That person didn't work out. So they told me, but you should talk to this woman. I think she has a great story to tell. You should really highlight it. And She was willing to tell me her story. It was just talking with lawyers who eventually led me to the story. Wow. I think my... The complexities obviously are many, and I think that people's need to immigrate are also complex and varied. So I think what I'm wondering is, what is why wouldn't someone remain in their home country, in air quotes, like sort of do it the legal way? Again, it depends on what country you're from, but literally some countries are excluded from any sort of legal way to come to the U.S. And it might be a little comical to think of it, uh, to think about this concept, but the U.S. D- does have a lottery-based system in which they literally, anyone from certain, certain countries will put their name into this lottery and the U.S. will pick out their name to be able to come to the country. And usually the U.S. government only does that for countries that have a low number of immigrants from that country in the U.S. So some of the countries that need the most relief they're already historically been coming to the U.S., so they necessarily their countries wouldn't be able to have that that pathway to get into the country legally. So, in some cases, like there literally isn't another option, right? The other legal way that you can come in is if you get a tourist visa to the U.S. And once you get that tourist visa, you can ask for start the asylum process. That's technically the legal way. But in order to get a tourist visa, you have to be able to prove that you're not coming to the U.S. to stay permanently. So you have to show that you have resources in in your home country, that you're living comfortably because there's no need for you to come to the U.S. You're literally coming here to spend money and just visit tourist sites. So that's an option that's excluded for a lot of the migrants who are coming in because they don't have the resources to prove, yes, I live comfortably. I'm literally just visiting the U.S. But the other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the immigrants who are here undocumented already, actually somehow, not somehow, but they were able to get that tourist visa. They decided to stay because they figured, well, there's no other way for me to get to the country legally. There are other options to come legally, right? When we're talking about student visas or work-related visas. But again, those are options only afforded to if you're a student or if you have a very specialty skill that the U.S. companies are looking for. So, but if you're, we're talking about people who just want to come here and work what we call non-skilled labor, there isn't that option. There literally isn't. So I get that question a lot. Why don't they come here legally? Uh, well, there isn't one. Depending on the circumstances, depending on the country you're from, there are literally quotas, or you literally have to be 
have money in your bank account. And the people who want to come here to work don't have the money in their bank account because if they did, why would they want to leave? Yeah. So it's easier to come here if you are in a less desperate situation, it sounds like. Yes. Okay. But then why would you need, why would that be of interest to you? I mean, a few people will be of interest to that situation. I know. There's so much to unpack. And then I think via my curiosity is, so countries that are like sort of ineligible for immigration, like, is that written out somewhere? Like, is there like a list of countries? And also, is it clear who isn't on that list and why? Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. For the list, it's for the lottery-based system. So there's listed countries who are eligible for those residents to be able to participate in the lottery system. And we'd have to look it up, but I don't have the list of the countries. Wow. I don't know why, but this shocks me. Okay. <laughs> Right. But for other countries who want to come here legally, it's not necessarily that they're ex- being excluded. It's so much that the criteria to be able to come here legally is so high. And like I mentioned, you just need the resources to be able to come here legally. Many of them don't have the resources, especially during COVID. I think a lot of countries, like I mentioned, some countries were had visas or there was an understanding between Mexico and certain countries in Latin America that residents of other parts third party or third countries, like let's say Venezuela, could easily get a visa into Mexico and then get to the U.S.-Mexico border. But Mexico changed its visa rules to prevent fewer Venezuelan citizens to get that visa. So now those who are desperate, who had enough money to get that visa, but are desperate to still leave, now that option is cut off from migrating from Venezuela to Mexico legally. So it's not just a U.S.-Mexico problem or a U.S.-Latin American problem. This is a global phenomenon that we're talking about. It's not just the U.S. who is getting a lot of asylum seekers. There are other countries in Europe that are also dealing with these issues. There's just such of a destabilized problems that are forcing people to leave, whether it's oppressive governments that historically weren't there before, or it's natural disasters that are forcing a lot of farmers who once lived off their land can't because of climate change affecting their land. It's not just an economic issue. It's a persecution issue for a lot of these people. But anyway, to answer your question, there's not necessarily a list of countries that are excluded from people coming. It's just that the criteria is so high that it's almost impossible for certain people to be able to migrate legally. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're thinking this, Nicole, but I feel like, yeah, a lot of times you'll hear dialogue around immigration from people who don't really understand the the complexity of it. Yeah. Like, well, why don't you just come legally? It's like, do you know what that looks like? Mm-hmm. Probably not. I know I'm learning what that looks like. So do you come up against this, Uriel, like this difficulty having a conversation with the public about immigration and a lack of knowledge about the complexities of the issue? Yes, a lot. It's a particularly when someone says, well, my wife did it legally or my family did it legally. And it's hard to know what they're talking about unless they're talking about specifically their cases. Let's take, for example, historically in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of Mexican people who came here illegally. And I don't want to say a lot, but now some of those people who came here illegally and are U.S. citizens now are sometimes the ones calling for the border wall. And they'll say, well, I did it legally. I think what people confuse is that, no, you had a pathway to get your green card and citizenship, and that pathway doesn't exist for everyone. And I think that's what people get confused when the AP say, we did it legally, 
when they don't realize that their path to their green card or path to citizenship was available, depending on the policies and the laws of the generation you decided to migrate. You know, one of the prime examples was humans. For a long time, they were as long as they were able to get to Florida, regardless of how they get there. Once they step on U.S. land, they're automatically giving immigration benefits that allow them to work, allow them to live in the U.S. permanently, something that is not afforded to Mexicans, right? Mexican citizens. So politics plays a lot in this, right? It's not just, well, I was able to do it legally. I mean, at the time, the U.S. and Cuba had really tense relationships that the U.S. government decided to accept asylees and refugees from that country. But other countries either have, don't necessarily have as an example, the Mexican government isn't seen as a dictatorship, even though there is a lot of corruption. There's a lot of issues that are going on in Mexico that the U.S. just simply doesn't recognize those issues as something that's going to affect migration to the U.S. So one thing that I emphasize a lot with people is that you have to realize that immigration laws, immigration rules are so arbitrary. They're not necessarily based on natural things or the demands of what the country needs or what the world needs. It's literally just politics. Whether we want certain countries, people from certain countries to come in legally, we can do that. The U.S. can do that. We just choose not to. Right. Like they're not set in stone. They're set by people and people can make it easier or harder is what it sounds like, right? Right. And the amount, it sounds like, and the rate of change sounds like that's also unpredictable. Like what was true 10 years ago may not be true anymore. And yeah, arbitrary, I think, is, like you said, the perfect word to describe all of this. It feels like there's just nothing that is hard and fast. I think that's my struggle as I'm listening to this. And I keep kind of putting my head in my hands because I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. I feel like in in the conversations that we've had in our episodes, always my goal by the end is to feel like I've kind of wrapped my hands around whatever it is we're talking about, wrap my mind around it. I don't feel like I can do that here. There's so many factors. It's like there are these world economic factors, there are world political factors that cause people to flee. There's so much that sends people away from their home countries. There's not one general thing, right? So there's that. There's also what happens once they reach the border? Are they even able to get to the U.S. border? Then there's what happens once, if they are able to cross, what they were able to do in that case and what happens in the meantime until they can get hearings. I mean, this is incredibly complex. And then also throw in the mix of a changing political tides and rules that, from my amateur citizen point of view, nobody seems to want to really like sit down and tackle this. Well, let's ask you that. Do you get that sense that there is momentum to work towards solutions for this problem, whether it be at the Texas state level or the national level? Yeah. I mean, before I answer that question, I think one point that I want to make is that the private industry or the federal government doesn't catch up to what the private industry needs are. There are certain types of jobs here that people or there are certain employers who need to hire employees, but certain but when you're established in the U.S., you're not necessarily seeking those jobs. And so there are people desperate enough to uh, work um, jobs that are that have a lower salary just to get started, just to get their uh, just to get the basic needs. Um, but it's surprising that sometimes the reality of politics is not the reality of the real world. And to segue into your question, is there momentum? It's hard to say. I think. I may be cynical, but the momentum right now doesn't feel real. We've seen these problems 
for 10, 20, 30 years, the issue of illegal immigration. And yet there's always an excuse not to solve the issue. The common excuse that I hear a lot is that we need to secure the border first before we do anything. What would that even look like, do you think? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> it means something different to different people. <laughs> For some, it means literally a physical wall. Sometimes it means having the National Guard out there. Sometimes it means don't let anyone in at whatever cost. What it doesn't mean is let's have an orderly fashion Let's open processing centers. Let's welcome people in and we'll process them right then and there. That's not what that means. <laughs> so border security has been about enforcement, more border patrols, more technology, barriers to block people from coming in. Whether physical or... Right. <sighs> yeah. But over the last three decades, the border has had more technology, more agents, and more prosecutions of people crossing the border illegally. And yet, for some, that's not a solution or that's not enough. Like people want more, more. But it almost sounds like an excuse. I think Democrats and Republicans, and politicians in general, will use a social issue to drive up their base to come out to vote. And I feel like immigration is one of those issues that I think both parties use. Vote for me because I'm going to vote for the DREAM Act. Or vote for me because I'm going to make sure that illegal immigrants are deported. But yet, neither party has been able to solve it. And I think the general public knows what the solutions are, um, yet nothing gets done. We also realize that labor shortage. And there's a lot of asylum seekers who are willing to work at a hotel right now, at a restaurant, or at a farm, anywhere just to get started. And yet, we don't seem to want to solve that issue either. Mm -hmm. It's always a talking point. And it's a great political talking point during campaigns. Yet, that's why I feel like I may be cynical for this question. But no, I don't feel the momentum right now that any any of this is going to get resolved anytime soon. Well, Nicole and I also like to think about what's the fastest path to course correct in all of these big, big issues. And our idea is mandatory voting. We think if more people voted we would see more solutions because people would have that pressure to really push forward the will of the people, which we think is to solve problems. So that's our idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bringing that up again, everybody. I'll have to, I'll get the memes loaded for mandatory voting. Yes. I guess as we're wrapping up, are there any misconceptions about immigration or uh, maybe like myth busting that you would like our audience to know so that they do have a factual understanding of this issue? There's a lot, but I think if there's something that I wish now that I'm a border resident, I hope people realize that the border is not out of control for the majority of people. People live comfortable lives, are able to get up, go to work, take out their families on a weekend, and just an American city, just like any other city along the U.S. And so I'm not saying that I had these misconceptions coming in, but it just now that I see it, now that I live here in El Paso, I, I, I'm a border resident myself. Now that my family's here, it's really nice. It's just a beautiful place to be at, too, if you like the outdoors. And I think a lot of people have this misconception that it's border towns are dirty or there's chaos because of all the immigrants. It's just far from the reality. And the rhetoric just does not meet the reality. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Nicole, before we move into our last part of the show? No. I mean, there's lots, right? 
<laughs> There's just so many. I wish for simplicity, but I think that's just not what this issue invites. It's <laughs> just not, it's not here. So no, thank you so much for the knowledge and the fact-based information. Yes. And there's so much more we could talk about. Maybe in a future episode, we will. Like we didn't even get Operation Lone Star, which is a big thing that is an initiative of the governors. And we would like to know more, but that's for another day. So before we let you go, Uriel, we like to do our attention mentions, which is where we lighten the mood a little bit and just talk about something culturally that has our attention. So like a show or a show or a TV show, a show, whatever, podcast, movie, an event that you went to. So I'll start off because I have something that is kind of related to this conversation. This weekend, I was just like scrolling through my streamers, landed on HBO Max, and I found this show called We're Here. And have y'all heard of this? I have. Okay. It's delightful. (laughs) The reason I watched it was because, so I'll tell you about the show for a second. It's three drag performers, Bob the Drag Queen, Eureka, and Sangela from RuPaul's Drag Race. They go to small towns in America and put on a drag show. And the episode I watched took place in Del Rio, Texas. And I have lived in Del Rio, Texas. My mom and her family are from there. They immigrated from Mexico to Del Rio, lived there twice. There's an Air Force base there. And I was like, Del Rio, are you serious? So it was really interesting to see them put on this show there. And of course, it's the border, which is what we're talking about. So check out We're Here. It's an interesting show on HBO Max. That's interesting. I'm I'm curious to watch that now. Yeah, I hadn't heard about it before. Oh, there you go. It's a good one. What's funny is that it just came up in a conversation with a friend yesterday, that particular show and the episode where they go to Granberry. Because, you know, there's been so much happening here in Texas and Granberry. So anyway, I'll have to go. Nice. Yeah. Watch all these episodes. Well, guests first, if you feel like you know yours, Uriel. I'm going to stick with TV shows here and particularly HBO, one TV show that I've been watching a lot called Los Spookies. Oh, yes. And I just recently learned, and I hate the fact that it was canceled, but that was one of my favorite shows just because it showed a lot of subcultures that Hispanic people in the U.S. and Latin Americans have. And it just felt really, what's the term I'm looking for? It didn't feel forced. It's a bilingual show. But one of the issues that I have with a lot of bilingual shows is that it sometimes feels forced. They have a certain people in mind, and they want to teach more than show. And I think for this show, I just showed a certain type of culture that is not necessarily seen a lot in American mediums. And for me, I just love the TV show. And if you love absurd, absurd comedy, this is definitely up there. It's hard to explain. It's just the kind of TV show you just have to watch and have an open mind. Because like I said, just the subcultures there, the fact that it was bilingual, and if you like that sort of a horror type movies or horror culture. Not that it's a horror TV show, but it's that type of show that people who love that type of stuff will love this show. Yeah, I saw the first season and that's a good reminder for me to go back and watch the rest of it. But maybe they'll bring it back. Maybe the people will be heard and they'll be like, oh, we we made a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) It does happen. It does happen. Okay, just to not do another TV show, but I was quite tempted. Um, I will name a podcast, which is a little bit culty. And it is hosted by Sarah Edmondson and Nippy Ames, who were two people who were featured in the documentary The Vow about the ending of Nexium and the trial of Keith Raniere. But their show, they co-host it. They're a married couple and they talk to survivors of cults. And sometimes they will also have guests on who educate about 
what kind of personality traits people demonstrate who are cult leaders. So sometimes it's educational, but it's mostly personal stories of people having been in a cult and then escaped. So a little bit culty. Yeah, that sounds interesting too. Yeah. I'm obsessed with cults. <laughs> I think I'm finding a lot of parallels around me in the current world. And so it helps me understand. It's true. I mean, even just like, I feel like this day and age, like the distrust of real information. I mean, that's such a hallmark of cults, right? Like making you question your reality and have the ground be very unsettled underneath you. Yes. Leadership, putting themselves between you and your own intuition and beliefs and what is real and what isn't. Yes, it is all over the place. Yeah, good stuff. Again, thank you so much, Uriel. We really appreciate this conversation. Hopefully we'll have perhaps another one in the future because there's a lot here for us to understand, but this is a great place for us to at least get a little bit of a framework so we can move forward and understand this more accurately, which is what we really seek to do here in this podcast. So thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you guys too. I'm glad there's a platform where we have a little more of a conversational tone about complex issues. Yes, we need it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.